This is episode number 188. How can we find our purpose with Kathleen Garris? Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your false potential. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to make a few quick announcements. First one being an invitation to our upcoming call called Courageous Conversations. This is something that we started a few months ago with the intention of bringing our community even closer, as well as creating a space for each and every single one of us to be able to not only better understand ourselves, but also those that are walking next to us. If you would like to know more details about any of these upcoming calls, please leave us a message through our website at overcomingodds.today. The last thing that I would like to mention is if you have liked any of the previous episodes and continue to enjoy the content that we put out there, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can hear these inspiring and courageous conversations. Now, let's get back to the show. Kathleen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being a part of it. Thank you for connecting with me prior. And um, thank you for choosing to have this conversation around this concept of purpose and uh, different ways we can find it and able to articulate it. I know for me, it's been a journey, very interesting journey, to say the least, when it comes to finding it, because I was once upon a time caught in this loop that in order for me to find purpose, I had to go on these uh, adventures you know, to Thailand and other parts of the world and meditate and yeah. live with monks and just different perspectives. And then I just realized that for me, purpose at the core is as simple as just service. It's choosing to serve in whatever area it may be. And then over time, I was very fortunate to have found the things that I was genuinely passionate about. But, you know, maybe to start off this dialogue, I wanted to hear your perspective, like, what was pur- purpose to you however many years ago? And how do you look at purpose today? Well, first of all, thanks for inviting me. Um, it's my pleasure. We don't often get a chance to talk about this, you know, as, uh, as a society, which I mm-hmm. think we should do this more because um, I think if people had a chance to look and be a little bit introspective, you know, it might help us all, especially during this crazy time that we are in right now in this country, especially mm-hmm. in the world in, at large, but in, in the US, it's just really scary right now. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I have to say from a really young age, I questioned uh, the status quo in the world, much to the chagrin of my parents. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't understand why things were the way they were, the gender, you know, gender things like, you know, girls can't do that and boys shouldn't cry and that kind of stuff. I just, from a very young age, was wondering like, why is it like that? Uh, and I didn't agree with it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, interesting, of course, enough that I uh, grew up and ultimately, you know, kind of fell into being a professor of sociology where I get to discuss those kinds of things every day. So that's kind of nice. But I think for me, truly, my that, that whole questioning of like, what, what do I need the answer to for myself, right? To learn about what my purpose is here in the world, mm. you know, in, in this life, in this one solitary life that I have. What do I want to do with it? And it was probably shortly after my HIV diagnosis back in 1985, okay? My husband and I both tested positive. He was a man who was uh, exposed to the blood supply his whole life because he was born with hemophilia. We had just had our daughter like a year before that. So I had an infant daughter and um, we found out day before my 27th birthday that him and I were both infected with HIV, mm-hmm. tested positive. And, uh, but my daughter had tested negative. But they weren't sure what that meant because it's kind of like how COVID is right now. You know, mm-hmm. does an antibody mean it's protective to you? Is it not? Does it mean if you test negative, does it mean you can still test positive? All of those kinds of things that we're currently having these discussions about. So this is like deja vu to me. <laughs> um, yeah, unfortunately, not a good deja vu. You know, it's not something I really want to relive. Um, but I think it was at that moment in time, because I came from a place like I was extremely lucky and loved growing up. You know what I mean? I came from a family that my both my parents loved each other. They loved us kids. Um, if anything, they probably um, spoiled us. I think you know what I mean. Uh, as opposed to, you, know, you hear a lot of people that are talking about their childhood and they, it was not a great one. Mine was, I had a wonderful family. So I was not prepared um, for that kind of reality in my life. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying I didn't understand it. I'm just mm-hmm. saying I lived my life. I was a very cautious person, okay? Because I grew up with allergies, fatal allergy to nuts, almost died numerous times as a child, really bad with asthma. So I was sick a lot as a child. So I always took really good care of my body. You know what I mean? And I was always really, I never did drugs. I, you know, I don't drink alcohol, you know, it was all of those things. And then all of a sudden uh, I find out that I'm diagnosed with the, you know, modern day plague. And what did that mean for me? What did that mean for my, my young daughter? I mean, that was the thing that terrified me the most was, how am I going to get through this? We don't know anything about it, right? And uh, my husband, who felt really guilty that I was infected, because obviously I got infected through him, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, through unprotected sex, which is how you have babies. So in case you, know, in case you didn't know. <laughs> um, so... Uh, it was all of those things, right? All those questions are in my mind about what do I do now? And how do I proceed with my life? And for me, anytime I've ever been confronted with something new, you know, something that I didn't understand, my, my go-to is always educate yourself, right? 
find out as much as you can about whatever this is. And so I did that and I jumped into, um, you know, HIV. I got involved with a local organization, started doing HIV education. Uh, I started a support group for women in the hemophilia community. Um, this was all kind of against my husband's wishes because he was really concerned that if I started doing a support group for women uh, whose husbands were also infected with HIV, that somehow we were going to all discuss how are we going to, you know, how are we going to get divorced from them? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It was very personal to him. He thought that's what it was all about. And for me, it was never about that. He knew that I did not blame him at all. It wasn't his fault. He knew nothing. Nobody knew anything. Um, so there's nothing that we could have done differently for ourselves. But I had a, the, the underlying feeling for me was, I know that knowledge is power and it helps people to make you know, informed decisions. So I wanted to take what I didn't know about HIV and make it my life's work to make sure that other people knew what they needed to know about HIV so that mm -hmm. they were not blindsided, you know, like we were. And um, I mean, at that time period, of course, there wasn't a lot known and there wasn't any research or anything happening. You know what I mean? When we were first diagnosed. Mm -hmm. So they could tell you that you had HIV, but there was nothing they could do for you. There was no meds, nothing available. So it was a really, really dark time. And I think the only thing that gave me purpose, well, two things. The first one was my daughter. I mean, how could I, I just gotten a death, a, a, you know, a terminal diagnosis, okay? Because uh -huh. um, that's the thing that they told us that day. They told us a couple things that stuck in my brain. One was that people that had tested positive previously usually were dead within 18 months to two years. And my daughter at that point was a year and a half old. So she was my first concern. She has always been my first concern, still to this day. She's an adult. She's still the first thing I think about in the morning. And she's the last thing I think about at night before I go to sleep, you know? And, um, that has always been, she's been my lighthouse, if you will. So on all those stormy, uh, stormy times where things got really bad and really scary, um, and I didn't know if I could go on, Stephanie was always the thing that kept me going. You know, she kept me looking at the lighthouse. And uh, so for me, she was my purpose. Uh -huh. And then in the greater sense, you know, what could I do for our community, for our society that would help not just her, right, but other people? And so that was the, my greater purpose then was education. And I have, I threw myself into it, um, learned about everything that I could. I worked with, within the gay community because that's early on, that's the only people that were doing anything about uh, HIV, you know, education. Mm. <clears throat> And um, so I not only learned about how to teach about HIV, but I learned about sexuality, you know, and for me, again, that was a new thing. And so jumped right into that too, you know, learn whatever I can. Um, and I have to say that I feel like the person that I am today, I was never a bad person, but the person that I am today is a much more rounded person. Uh, I am not judgmental. I think when I was younger, I used to think things were black and white, yeah. right? right or wrong. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and it was really only because I didn't understand stuff, right? Like sexuality is an example. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't understand how that whole thing worked. <laughs> no. So um, working with and uh, becoming friends with and loving my gay and lesbian friends and trans friends uh, has made me a better person. Mm. Okay. So I feel like my life's work, you know, kind of was always, because of what happened to me in my life, it kind of put me down this path um, to be much more insightful, much more empathetic, um, allowing myself to be vulnerable, which is scary, yeah. you know, um, because it takes you, I mean, you, you put yourself out there. And um, I, that's what I do. I, I am still, I mean, even though I'm a full-time sociology professor at a local community college here in the Detroit area, um, I still, I started a nonprofit working with girls and women with HIV back in 1999. Um, so, wow, that's been a while. <laughs> um, Just a couple it doesn't years. Seem like that, but like, hey, that's a couple <laughs> years, yeah. Um, and I do this stitch, it's called the Stitches Doll Project, where uh, we do workshops with girls and women who are living with HIV, and we bring all the stuff to make a doll. So we bring a, you know, like a uh, rag doll, and we bring all of the buttons and bows and ribbons and materials and stuff like that. We ask them to create a doll that represents them. And then we ask them to answer one question, which is, if your doll could talk, what would she say? Mm. What would she want people to know? Okay, because this way it gives women, right, their own voice to tell their story. Um, and this is where you and I, obviously, the work that we do is is quite similar, right? Um, you, you, you know, we learn from other people's stories. Yeah. And if people can, if people feel safe enough to share something, right, um, then it allows other people in the room to also feel safe enough to share something. Yeah. I find that all the time. When I, when I tell about my story or my life, I'm always having people come up to me, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, to give me a hug or something and whispering in my ear, right? My dad died of AIDS too, and that kind of thing, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so no matter what we're discussing, and I do that even in, my, in, in all of my classes, I take all of my sociology classes, I take the time to educate them about HIV so that they understand, you know what I mean, what the issues are, what they need to know. Um, I always self-disclose so that they feel comfortable, they can ask me anything they want. Um, and for many of those, many of my students and many of the people I meet, um, I am the first person that they've met that has HIV, that they yeah. know of, right, mm -hmm. that, that has been out about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really powerful. Mm -hmm. I think it's really powerful. Um, to tell your own story, to own your own voice. Um, you know, early on, it was scary, really, really scary to do that. And I had a lot of, you know, negative, negative feedback from people, whether, I mean, both people that I knew, but <clears throat> usually more people that were strangers to me, that we were maybe, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I was doing maybe a talk somewhere or whatever, and you're speaking to a room full of people, and I remember this clearly 
we were doing, I was doing an adult education class. It was evening, all adults. And they asked me to come in and speak about living with HIV. Mm-hmm. And I was standing in a, in a fairly large room. <clears throat> and I, as soon as I said, talked about myself being infected, literally the whole back, there was a whole big uh, group in the back of the room. Like seven people got up and, and like almost pushed each other over trying to get out of the room because they thought they could you know, catch HIV. And this is when I was young and I, and I didn't, I mean, right now, now I look more like I could have something wrong with me, you know, uh, because of the meds I've been on that have just emaciated my face mm-hmm. and other parts of my body. But at the time I looked totally healthy. There was, you couldn't tell anything by looking at me, right? And I think in some ways that was a good, a good message for people. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't tell by looking anybody could have this virus and you need to know about it. So for me, that has been my, like I said, my, my main purpose was to make the world a better place, a safer place. And through my sociology classes where I get to talk about, like I said, sexuality and mm-hmm gender, uh, you know, uh, inequality and all these kinds of things. Um, I love it. It is, it's where I'm supposed to be, I think. Yeah. It was the answer to my prayers, even though I didn't know, I didn't know it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. As I kind of came to this sociology thing by accident, being a professor, it wasn't something that I had planned. I didn't get my master's degree till I was 51 years old. So it was definitely the uh, road less traveled. If you will. It gives you a chance to process. It, it's a space to reflect upon experience. You know, there's <laughs> there are a couple of things that you mentioned that I think are very interesting to point out and explore. My first question to you is in regard to mortality. How does, what changed when your own mortality became a question mark? <sighs> I know this is going to sound weird, but from a very young age, because of my health challenges, mm-hmm. I had a very, a big sense of mortality from when, when most kids, you know, aren't thinking about that at all. Right. And I was really concerned and I always had this kind of like a recurring dread. Maybe it was a nightmare. I'm not sure that um, <clears throat> one day I would walk into, you know, my doctor's office. And at that time it was, of course, my pediatrician. And he was going to tell me that I had something that was incurable and was going to kill me. Mm. So I think that was like a, uh, right. Like a predestined kind of thing. Somehow I, somehow I had a sense early on in my life that my mortality was going to be an issue. Um, and so when that happened, it, it wasn't so much my own mortality my own loss of my life, I think that scared me so much. It was what that would mean to my daughter, right? Yeah. To my husband, to my family, to the people that cared about me. And and at that moment in time, I mean, there was nothing that anybody could do. You know, it's there was nothing available, right? So there was nothing anybody could say or do or a pill, you know, or any kind of treatment. And so I had to learn to deal with that fear. And what can you do when there's nothing else available? What yeah. can you do? 
And the only thing you can do is take control of this, right? Your, your, your psychic, the way that you kind of react to everything. Um, and I went and I, like I told you, I went and I, ju I jumped into everything about education. Like how did I learn more about it? So I went and read books by Deepak Chopra, you know, uh -huh. quantum healing. Uh, I went to the AIDS medicine and miracles conference, right. To learn about meditation and reflexology and, you know, all these other kinds of what, what they call alternative um, therapies. Um, but in reality, they're not alternative at all. Um, I think that's where we live. I think that's where our bodies live and our psyches live, um, that we've just forgotten about those things. So it helped me a lot. It helped me to focus more on what I could do, right? What I could control in a way, um, because there was nothing else about my life that was controllable at all. You know, if those things are natural, why is it that we not we, but some of us choose to label it as alternative then? Well, I mean, I, my answer is because the, uh, you know, the medical people in the United States anyway, I'll just speak for the U.S., um, came to power kind of and medicalized everything. I mean, if you think about, you know, childbearing, I mean, women have given birth since the beginning of humans, and women always helped other women, right? Uh, many women gave birth by themselves out in a field somewhere, you know? Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, it became that, oh, it has to be done in a hospital and it has to be done by, you know, by this licensed person. And, you know, you can't possibly do it by yourself. It's, it's all, so, I mean, I think that is what happened is that everything became medicalized and that anything that was from the old world um, became something that, oh, you should, oh no, that's just an old wives' tale. You don't want to do that. You know, here's a pill. <laughs> here's a pill that we can make some money on. You know, I, I'm very cynical about capitalism and how it um, destroys a lot of things. And, uh, and I think that it, it has definitely done that. I mean, look at the pharmaceutical companies. Um, you know, they're not in the business of making people well they're in the business of making money. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is why they can, you know, you, you purchase a company and you take something like the EpiPen, which of course people need so that they don't die from allergies, which is again, something I know about. Um, and they jack it up, you know, I can't remember now what it was, 700% uh, or something, yeah. uh, the price of it. So that people who actually need it to, so they don't die from a bee sting or, from a nut allergy or whatever. Um, so people can't even afford to get it. Yeah. You know, so this is, this is my feeling about it is that they medicalize things. And then the, the traditional kind of medicine uh, was denigrated. Mm -hmm. denigrated. Uh, and then of course, if you grow in, if you are born into that environment, you know, you, you that's what you just assume that, Oh, the, the doctor's with us to, and I'm not saying doctors are bad. I'm not saying that. I've had some really, really good doctors. Okay, I'm still alive today. I'm 62. I've had this virus in my body since I was 26. So, you know, yeah. Um, I'm still alive today. And it is because of the researchers and the people who've developed the medications, right, that have kept me going. 
Yes, there has been certainly side effects and some harm that has been done to my body, some of which I really don't want to discuss uh, here, um, GI problems, but um, I'm still alive today because yeah. of medical you know, science. So I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying that it needs to be, you need to look at both sides of things, you know, and I think alternative therapies, I have to tell you, I mean, I have had, I have been, I got a reflexology. I had a woman who did reflexology for me uh, here. She was living here in Michigan. And I am not exaggerating when I say that she, as she was working on my feet, it was just my feet. I went to another place. I mean, I was so relaxed and floating somewhere. It was awesome. Um, not everybody is that good. You know what I mean? Different yeah. people are, have different skill sets. That woman, amazing. And unfortunately, she moved down to Arizona, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So now I don't, I don't have her. <laughs> so I'm you know, looking I think, for a new one. I think there's one thing that you point out is, at least in my opinion, there is no perfect system. I think there's a... Uh, right. I mean, having lived in Russia and experienced elements of communism, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. then moving here and experiencing capitalism. And what I've learned, at least through these two from personal experience, is that each system is going to have its advantages and disadvantages. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Some systems, I mean, you can literally go across the border to Canada and experience this concept of universal health care, yeah. which you're not able to experience here. But there's, there's also something to be said, even in regard to the capitalism part, because, <laughs> I mean, let's face it, when it comes to it, it, it's not for everyone. Not every system is meant to be for everyone. Right. Some people love this system. For me personally, having lived in an environment during the first 12 years of my life where I didn't have many of the things that kids have and always having to strive and constantly fight and, and figure out ways to make certain things around me resources right. that may not be perceived that in a capital <clears throat> capitalistic society to me it's um it's a big advantage at least in my perspective because it allows me to really um create that dream you know or recreate certain elements of my childhood yeah. that i didn't experience yeah. so i think it's I, i'm totally with you i think there's definitely things to be improved. There will always be things to improve. And I think the reason why that might be true is because there's always going to be new things to learn. Evolution doesn't stop. You know, it's, we've evolved into who we are today. And, and that's one of the things that um, I remember I, I was having a conversation with my grandpa who passed away. I think it was at, he was in 97 and him and I were having a conversation about the different events that he has been through in his life, the different mm -hmm. world wars, civil wars, things like sure. that. And he told me something that has stood out ever since. And that's evolution has no end. It, it everything's meant to evolve. Sure. Change you know, even, is one thing you can count on. Exactly. It's inevitable. It, it's yep. going to happen with or without us. Yep. Um, but I think this mindset that <laughs> something that you've described as far as having the ability to adjust and be open-minded, non-judgmental, it really just helped, at least in my experience, it's helped that much more. It helped yeah. me see things yeah. literally in front of my own eyes that are there every single day as whether it's opportunities, resources, or just things to be grateful for, the ability yeah. to breathe. Oh, for sure, for sure. I think that my early health issues as a child mm -hmm. has, 
has created in me that I am always forever grateful every day. I mean, I am always in wonder of the trees and the birds in my backyard. You know what I mean? <clears throat> I'm the one that looks up at the sky, at the clouds, and I'm like, oh, look how beautiful. I mean, I'm, that's me. Okay. I'm a tree hugger. I literally hug trees. So <laughs> that's awesome. I, I literally <laughs> hug trees. My husband has pictures. I'm not even exaggerating. So um, yes, I think that, um, and I believe that my my diagnosis at a, at a young age, I mean, obviously I was, you know, I was 27. So mm-hmm. I mean, I wasn't 10, you know, I wasn't a little kid or something. And that, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother thing of kids having to deal with challenges and illnesses and stuff. But um, that really did help me to solidify for me the being grateful for every single day and the people in my life. You know, my relationships are the most important thing to me. I could care less the kind of house I live in as long as I'm with the people that I love. You know, I don't care about a lot of things that a lot of other folks do. I'm not a materialistic person. Doesn't mean I don't have stuff and I don't like things that I have. I mean, like I couldn't get by without my my iPhone. Uh, <laughs> Welcome to the club. It helps me live my life, you know. But I'm just saying, if if I didn't, if I couldn't have an iPhone, mm-hmm. I I can get by. I, I got by with one before. You know what I mean? Without one, I should say. Yeah. Um, and as far as the whole capitalism thing, I mean, like you said, there's different things work for different people, but the reasons that I think that some of them, or maybe even all of them. They work for a while and then they stop working. And that's yeah. because of human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, we are flawed. Uh, we are greedy. You know what I mean? We make mistakes. We make bad decisions. I mean, we're human. So um, I think for any type of society to work, it has to have checks and balances in it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that it doesn't, so that there's certain people that can't just do whatever they want to. It's great that uh, we live in, ca- in a capitalist society where we can do things. We could start our own business. I mean, you know, we can do all kinds of stuff. That's great. Yeah. But some of these big companies, right? The big corporations <clears throat> that can make products that kill people, whether it's a car, you know, with something faulty and they knew about it and they just put it out there anyway, because, you know, it's, it's, it's a better uh, monetary, you know, decision for them mm-hmm. than to actually fix the problem. Those kinds of things. That's where, that's where I see where capitalism is a problem without enough regulations involved. You see what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. So for me, that's my perspective. That's just, that's just me personally. Yeah. Um, but I am cynical at my age. I, I am cynical. <laughs> and I, and I'll, own, I'll own that. I will own that. And, you know, I think in regard to this and something that we talked about as well as just having the ability to express who you are and creating a space where you're not judged, but rather accepted, I, it's, I, I'm by no means to tell you how to live life because I haven't walked a single step in your shoes or anyone else's. And I think that's the, maybe the uh, blessing and a curse at the same time of being in a place like the United States, as well as some of the other countries where you can express your voice. Yeah. You can yeah. share your perspectives and opinions because there are countries that you, North Korea is an example. Yeah. You can't do it. Literally no. cannot do it. Right. Otherwise your life will be at risk I, or it could be at risk. I agree. So, I agree hundred percent. 
you know, there's, 100%. there's, um, there's beauty within that. And yeah, I think it's really interesting how I always get fascinated, even when regard to countries, how certain things got developed. Yeah. You know, like why is United States so different, not necessarily better or worse than some of the other nations. I mean, having the freedom to literally go on Facebook and or wherever and write whatever you want and know that you, in most cases, will not be prosecuted or no one's going to knock on your door and say, hey, how could you do this? Yep. 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 No, the great the great uh, experiment, uh, America, you know, with democracy and the Bill of Rights and our Constitution and all that. No, it's. uh, it, it was set up to be a very much more equal system, right? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, uh, you know, there's a king and the king tells everybody what to do and, you know, collects taxes and you don't have any say on anything. I mean, the whole idea of citizenship, you know, is awesome. Yeah. Um, as I said, and everything to me, like everything, you have to have everything in moderation, right? Yeah. Um, if it goes one, you know, far too far to one side or the other, it becomes a problem. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in the world. You know what I mean? I, I, mm-hmm. You're right. I, have, I know how uh, blessed I am to have the freedoms that I do. Uh, and my husband often tells me, my, my current husband, because my first husband died from AIDS, um, often tells me that if I was born even 50 years before I was, that I would have probably been burned at the stake as a witch, <laughs> you know, you know, because I'm so, again, I'm very uh, out there. You know, uh-huh. I tell people and I'm not rude. I don't mean it that way. I'm just very honest. And I figure I live my life. What you see is what you get. And it doesn't matter who I'm talking to, you know, what situation, whether it's my students, whether it's, you know, when I was working with, uh, you know, in president Clinton's, uh, you know, uh, his HIV had, AIDS advisory council and working with politicians or whatever, I'm the same all the time. And I will tell you what I think. Um, because for me, that's the only way I can live my life is to be honest and real and truthful. You know, I don't have time to keep secrets. Yeah. Um, Cause I did, I had to for a while when we first, you know, were diagnosed, they told us don't tell anybody because people were losing their jobs and you know, burned out of their homes and all kinds of horrible things. And we had to keep that secret for five years in the middle of all that scary, unknown stuff. And I never, never wanted to feel like that again. So ever since then, since 1990, when we went public, my life is an open book for better Mm -hmm. or for worse. Mm -hmm. It's an open book, Mm -hmm. you know, and people know that about me and they know that they can also share their stuff with me because I understand where they're coming from. Even if it's not something that I've lived through myself, I get it, you know? And like you said, this is what you do is so important is to give people a place Mm -hmm. where they can speak their truth. Right. And uh, not be afraid um, of what those consequences might be. Mm -hmm. Kathleen, what's the best way that people can connect with you? Do you have anything that's coming up that's part of your work that people can be a part of? Well, you know, COVID has changed a lot of things. It sure Um, has, (laughs) to say the least. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, we're not, 
currently having anything scheduled that's in person anything. Um, but I would like to say, I would like to be able to have people contact me through my email. That would be awesome. Um, through my Stitches um, doll project. So the website is actually stitchesdollproject.org. All one, you know, stitchesdollproject, uh -huh. one word, dot org. Um, so that's the website. But if they want to contact me, they can send an email to stitches, which is S-T-I-T-C-H-E-S, W-M-N for women, stitcheswomen, um, at gmail.com. Um, I'd be happy to hear from people. You know, I'm, like I said, always open for if people have questions or concerns or they have ideas for projects or anything they think I could help them with. Um, I'm happy to do it. Um, my, like I said, my HIV work will never be done until the day I die um, because it's, it's too important. And these days when I'm talking about teaching about HIV, we also are getting, we, we talk about COVID as well because there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of similarities there, um, both from the uh, context, like the historical context of how things were and a lot of mm -hmm. the fear and misunderstanding um, about both of these viruses, but also in how people can deal with and cope with some of the anxiety, you know, that comes with this and depression. And certainly now with uh, people having to, you know, stay at home and stay out of big groups, right? And really distance yourself from other people. I mean, we're social beings and we mm -hmm. require, right? We require being around other people. Um, so that we feel like we're alive. And this has been a really tough time for lots of folks. So um, as I said, anything, if anybody wants to contact me for any reason, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm totally open to that. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you haven't done so already, consider subscribing to our podcast so you can receive all of the latest content as well as all of the upcoming episodes. Also, if you like what you heard on any of the previous episodes, consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can hear these inspiring conversations. Once again, we thank you for listening and we'll look forward to having you next week.